I think another thing that feels really hard for parents is after someone has died, when your kid keeps saying it over and over again, like when you have a three or four year old who just keeps saying like, oh, and daddy died, right? Oh yeah, and daddy died and saying to the grocery store person, oh, my my daddy went to the hospital and then he died. And the grocery store person's like, oh my God, like what? Mm -hmm. So I think just having to prepare parents for that and how normal that is and how appropriate that is and how right that is for a toddler to be asking for that kind of confirmation over and over and how you know you just say yep you're right daddy went to the hospital and he died yep daddy died you're right that's right daddy died and like that's just a thing that's gonna happen a a really horrible hard conversation that you're just gonna have to have over and over and over with your three-year-old But I think if you don't know that, if you're not ready for that, like those are the kind of things that I think could make you feel really worried about your kids without knowing like, that's exactly right. That's exactly how their little brains are processing all that. Hey there, friends. Lisa here, host of this podcast, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Before we start the show, I want to take a moment to tell you about two great organizations. First, you might remember in season one, I had the honor of interviewing Jay Kim, founder of Cilantro Barbecue. He came on the show to talk about the life lessons he learned from his little sister. I was so moved by what grief over his sister taught him about life and about being a leader. He was so moved by the show that he offered to support it with a sponsorship. But instead of telling you about his incredible restaurants, he offered me a chance to tell you instead about one of my favorite nonprofits. The Phoenix Stone Foundation was started by Heather and Ben, whose beautiful son Phoenix died of childhood cancer a few years ago. I have the honor of knowing them personally and had the chance to know Phoenix in his too short life. They are carrying his memory forward in the work that they do with their foundation. Their mission is to provide outreach programs to provide material support to the children and families who have kids experiencing childhood cancer. Now, of course, if you're in Austin, you should definitely pick up some incredible food from Cilantro Barbecue at one of their seven locations. But no matter where you're listening from around the world, I invite you to visit phoenixstonefoundation.org to learn more about and maybe even support their efforts to make life just a bit easier for kids and families facing cancer treatment. So as I mentioned, I'm your host, Lisa Kiefhofer, and through this show and my work at Reimagining Grief, I'm changing the narratives of grief one conversation at a time. In today's episode, I was joined by two incredible women. Rachel Carnahan Metzger and Sierra Herbert. Rachel and Sierra are really special humans who have both dedicated their careers to supporting children and families going through the most difficult times in their lives. Working at Dell Children's Medical Center, Rachel serves as a pediatric palliative care social worker and Sierra as a certified child life specialist. They have made a career out of bearing witness, educating, and supporting families to be able to navigate the unimaginable. They do this every day with such compassion, such heart, and such wisdom. They bring that and more to today's conversation, and I can't wait for you to meet them. 
Rachel and Sierra, thank you so much for joining me today on Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm so thrilled you guys are here. I've been waiting for this conversation for a long time. Happy to be here. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah. So our listeners will know who've been listening to the show for a while now that I always start each of my interviews with the same series of questions, and it's really helping us ground and understand where we learn grief. Of course, we learn grief sort of from our broader cultural rules and norms, but really through my studies, through my practices, working with people, I've really come to understand the ways in which we learn grief by watching and listening for what our parents do, say, don't say, et cetera. And not just our parents, our kind of broader community. So we're going to talk a little bit later. The both of you, of course, are steeped in work that serves families who are going through some of the most serious and heart-wrenching experiences of their life, many of whom end up losing family members and have grief in lots of forms, who experience grief in lots of forms, both anticipatory and more traditional grief. So you do this work now, but I'd love, Sierra, if you want to start today to just sort of go back to thinking about what are your earliest memories of grief in your growing up life? And when you think about whatever that loss was, whether it was a death loss or some other kind of change that caused grief in your life, how are the adults in your life behaving? Were they talking about it openly or not? And sort of what do you think that taught you about grief now that you're grown up, now that you do this work? Absolutely. Share some reflections there. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I can think about really early on, probably in first grade, it's very common to have those projects of tell us about your family. And I remember both my grandparents had died before my grandfathers had died before I was born. So I remember coming home and asking my mom about it really early on and the memory that I have in my brain is not very detailed, but I remember her sitting at the table and crying and inviting me to share that space with her and be sad that I never had this opportunity to meet him. And I think that was so powerful to me because from an early age, she knew to just involve me in these conversations about emotionality and about death and about loss. And I remember it was kind of a running joke in our family because there was this one book called Mustard. I don't know if you guys ever read this book Mm. before. It's a book about a cat and its owner. And Mustard is old and has all these chronic conditions. And one day this dog scares him and he has a heart attack. And then he starts to go through the process of not being able to breathe and eat very well. And they have to give him all these medicines. And then finally, the vet gives him medicines to help him die. And then the the child, who's this owner, like has a funeral for him and keeps his collar and does all this really great legacy grief work. And then at the very end of it, someone offers him a new cat. And he's like, no, I'm not ready for that yet. Wow. What a like remarkably death progressive. It was incredible. And I had that like it, it was like a standard check out in my library like for me like I always had it and I think I just had this like draw to want to know how to process grief effectively and especially this grief that from people I hadn't even had the opportunity to meet and I, I think that influences my work now especially because I realize how powerful those resources are for kids and not just being able to talk with your supportive adult about it, but also to be able to have those concrete resources, stories and play and music and all those other expressive forms to learn and rehearse how to respond in grief situations. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like in your 
family of origin, folks were pretty open, even though you didn't necessarily have sort of a pivotal moment. Mm -hmm. Or I'd love to know a little bit if there was some pivotal loss that led you on the trajectory to be doing this work. But even without that, you had a family that was open to exploring these emotional conversations, maybe even difficult conversations for some families, and that that wasn't the case for your family. Yeah, my family was very open, both my dad and my mom, and and both of them, my mom having a, you know, a really wonderful father and my dad not actually having a great relationship with his father and and seeing the grief of both of that. In high school, I had a couple of close friends die from in various tragic ways, one a car accident, one by suicide. And so I think my heart was always gravitated towards supporting teens, especially in those really hard situations and the loss of a peer and what that does for your identity and for your growing up. And and then I... I don't know. So I think I think that's that was maybe more of a pivotal loss, especially as in the formation of my identity as an adolescent and having some of those significant grief experiences and we're having to rely on my peers for that and and more of my own self-work of like journaling. And I was a big songwriter and like big into poetry. That was my my form of self-expression and coping. And and so I think that maybe launched me in towards being more intrigued and being able to help other children, teens be involved in the conversation and and be a participatory person in the funeral and and grief work after the loss of of a friend. Yeah. Well, I definitely know we're going to talk a little bit later, I hope so, about sort of use of expressive practices and creative practices, particularly when we're talking about, well, I think as an adult, it's been one of my healing coping mechanisms for sure. But definitely when we're talking about young kids and teens, of course, thinking about that. So we're going to come back around to that for sure a little bit later in the conversation. Rachel, I want to ask you this question sort of in a more special way for our listeners who've been listening to the show for a while. You'll remember that Rachel joined me last season on It's Out of Order to talk about child death, child loss, and some of the particular challenges we have sort of culturally around that. So this season, I think I'd love to ask you to think a little, reflect a little bit more, which is now doing this work. I think you're approaching 10 years of doing this. If if we were on video, you'd see Rachel nodding <laughs> and big eyes there, right? Yeah. So you've been approaching doing this work for 10 years. Are you seeing differences in the way that families are coming in, in terms of their own awareness around conversations how to have conversations with their family members, whether it's the children themselves who are sick or the extended family. Are you having to have the same conversations year 10 that you were year one? What are you seeing on the family's end? Has there been change? And maybe more importantly, what are you noticing and how you're approaching conversations now at almost year 10 than how you were approaching them maybe right from the gate? Yeah, you know, I think in a lot of ways, the conversations are similar. Because I think the idea of talking to your children about death is scary. Even if you like live in the super kind of death progressive household like Sierra did, like where your mom was letting you check out weird cat <laughs> euthanasia books from, from the library. <laughs> Even in yeah. that, like yeah. it's, it's still scary. It, that is still a hard thing to know how to talk about. And I think I might be just making this up, but it feels like in working with younger families, parents who are younger, who may not have such a strong religious identity who maybe don't have religious language in which to tell the story of what happens when someone dies. That feels like it's happening maybe more often. And I think 
is in some ways harder for families when they don't have kind of this explanation of hope to be reunited and hope to see your person again when when you have to talk about death just as the end of this part of our experience with this person. And so I feel like maybe I'm just more aware of it now, but I feel like I've had those conversations or or questions about how do we do this? This is so sad. Death is so sad. Like, how do we have this conversation with our six-year-old? I feel like I've had those kind of conversations more often. And as for the way that the conversations have changed from my end, I think when you first start practicing or when you get out of school, you feel like really good about all the research that you've studied and all the things you've learned in school about the right way to take care of people in grief and the right way to take care of families and children as kids are approaching death. And I think I just had a lot of ideas about what was right. And I wanted, I'm a person who likes to do things right. And so I wanted everyone to do things properly. And so it was, I found it really challenging when I felt like families were making choices that I knew from research or that I knew from school would maybe not lead to the healthiest bereavement or maybe not lead to the best kind of psychosocial, emotional outcome for their family. That used to like really bother me and I would feel really frustrated by that. And I think over the last almost 10 years of doing this work, I've really just settled into this idea that families really know what's best for them. And that even if that doesn't match up with what research tells us or with what kind of the the general understanding of, of best practices is, that that doesn't really matter for that family. And so I feel like I've had this sort of internal switch of how I advocate for families and how I internally think about the way families are handling things with this assumption that families know exactly what they need in these moments. And even if they can't articulate it, like they are doing exactly what they need to be able to take care of themselves. Yeah. That's a really important transition. And I think anybody who's been through school, like we all have in social work or other practices, has that evolution over time. I was a posted up social worker in foster care right out of, I was did that in grad school and then right out of grad school. And I remember showing up again with those best practices. And when parents were complaining to me about their kids, you know, their adoptive kids screaming at them, I would say these things that I learned in school about it being a sign of like, you know, healthy attachment, whatever. And then I became an adoptive mom. And I was like, I want to go back and punch that version of myself (laughs) in the face for saying those things, you know, so... I can I can really appreciate the sort of the nuance. And yet still, Rachel, I imagine, and Sierra, if this applies to the work that you're doing, feel free to chime in. But so I imagine this maturation in a way in terms of your comfort with your practice of going from, no, I need you to do it this way to trusting sort of really with your heart and showing up with empathy that this family knows best. That's important. And you are are still there with some expertise. And when families are facing crises, sometimes our logic or our best way of thinking is not in the forefront. We're operating sort of from our primitive brain. So how do you navigate? I want to really honor that this is what the family believes and knows best for themselves. And I think I have some resources and experience that might help them. 
Does that question make sense? How do you navigate the in-between? Yeah. And Sarah and I have worked together um, in our ICU at, at the Children's Hospital with multiple families where we're sort of trying to balance what we know to be best practice against families' fears or discomfort with talking to patients or siblings about an impending death or providing honest information about a child's condition. I think it's a lot about finding that balance of continuing to provide that education because sometimes, you know, people just don't know for, for almost always, this is the first time a family's ever doing anything like this, right? And so they don't know. They don't know what they're doing. And Sarah and I do this all the time. And so it's okay that they don't know the right answer. It's okay that they don't know the next step because we do. And that's our job is to help them to provide that anticipatory guidance to help them know, here's the next thing that we should be thinking about. And here's the next thing to be talking about. And so I think it's really this balance of of providing that education and acknowledging how hard it is and how scary it is to think about these things, but kind of planting these little seeds and letting families know that whenever they're ready to have those conversations, whenever they want to kind of take that next step, that we're here to help them with that. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it's so much about those layers sometimes of, you know, going from one day or what your child knows as they're sick in the hospital to, oh, now they have this terminal illness. That might feel like way too big of a jump to be able to say that to your kid right away. So how do we go just one more layer of, you know, we did these tests and it's a little worse than we thought it was. Or is it we've tried all these medicines and and right now the doctors and nurses don't know another, another medicine to try, right? Like, is there just another bridge to be able to, to start to lay that educational foundation of, of getting the kids to, to come along with you and where, what's happening within own, within their own body. And I think kids are, are really smart about what's happening in their own body too. And will also give their loved ones and their supportive adults indications when they're ready for more information, whether that be through their play or through, I can think of a patient who his most favorite music to listen to was rap, R&B, Drake, all those things. And then one day he switched to only wanting to listen to Christian music. And for the rest of his hospitalization until he died, he only listened to Christian music. And so that was something that, you know, being a removed person, not a part of this nuclear family, showing the mom of why do you think that that change happened? And what does that tell you about where he is in his processing of his terminal illness? And does, does that change where the conversation goes now? Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's so insightful for those of us sort of on the outside. Again, like you said, when you're part of the nuclear family or it's it's your person, you know, that you're caring for, you don't always notice those subtle things. And also because we're drowning in our own fear and anxiety and anticipatory grief and everything else. So an invitation for any of our listeners who might be in this place where they have a loved one, particularly a child that is, you know, going through some kind of terminal or chronic illness that look out for those cues in those expressive, back to that conversation we were having before in those expressive ways. I would not have thought about a shift in music being a sign that somebody was coming to their own understanding of their own mortality and what that looks like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or I can think of in play too of doing that, the burying play or the grave play and death play. I, that happens a lot with siblings that I see who have a another sibling with a chronic illness that they'll want to 
be in the bathtub and be putting the like I can think of a mom who told me this that the, we like we're talking about their the terminal illness of their their kid and the sibling at home was doing a lot of bath play with putting the the Barbies underwater and saying, "Oh, he's underwater. He's gone away. Oh, this one's under underwater. He went away too." And you know what does that play mean? Like, is she processing through this separation? I'm mean, feeling that loss more than anything. And I think you know when you're a parent seeing that kind of stuff like that's so creepy that's so weird and you freak out and I think your answer may be oh my god we have to stop talking about this like look what it's doing to my kid they're doing weird bath play and like we're like oh that's how beautiful they're processing all you know and and like as a parent just standing there watching that like I think it's really easy to like have that come into your head of like oh god see this was wrong. We shouldn't have been having these conversations because now I've screwed up my kid. And so I, th- I think that's another reason that that kind of ongoing education is so important to just really normalize those kind of behaviors. Like we know that that's how kids make sense of their world is through play. And it's really intuitive when you say it out loud. But until you're in a space like this thinking about it, you just don't know that. You just don't think about that. It's so I weird. think it is weird. Yeah. Um, and so I think what, that's why that education is so important and kind of that setting expectations for parents of here are some of the things that you may see when you're having these hard conversations. I think another thing that feels really hard for parents is after someone has died, when your kid keeps saying it over and over again, like when you have a three or four year old who just keeps saying like, oh, and daddy died. Right. Oh, yeah. And daddy died and saying to the grocery store person, oh, my my daddy went to the hospital and then he died. And the grocery store person's like, oh, my God. Like, yeah. what? Mm-hmm. So I think just having to prepare parents for that and how normal that is and how appropriate that is and how right that is for a toddler to be asking for that kind of confirmation over and over and how, you know, you just say, yep, you're right. Daddy went to the hospital and he died. Yep. Daddy died. You're right. That's right. Daddy died. And like, that's just a thing that's going to happen. A a really horrible, hard conversation that you're just going to have to have over and over and over with your three-year-old. But I think if you don't know that, if you're not ready for that, like those are the kind of things that I think could make you feel really worried about your kids without knowing like, that's exactly right. That's exactly how their little brains are processing all that. Absolutely. You're really reminding me, you know, my daughter was seven Mm -hmm. when my husband passed and we didn't have any care or mm-hmm. any, maybe we got a pamphlet, I don't know, from the IC, the neuro ICU. And I was a social worker at the time. So I thought I should know everything, of course, and do everything. And Lily definitely did some play and some conversations and said things in public sometimes. And I definitely had that sort of knee-jerk reaction, like, what am I mm-hmm. not doing right? Or how am I not preparing these conversations? So I think the kind of roles that the two of you have at your hospital is so hugely important to help prepare parents to, even though it it may not lessen the sort of shock when you're standing in the store and your kid says that thing, is to be preparing them for those conversations and normalizing it. By the way, if Rachel's voice sounds familiar, that's because she joined me last season on the episode called Out of Order Loss. We were two social workers nerding out a bit on the topic of having hard conversations, including the experience of losing a child. When we come back, Rachel and Sierra help us better understand how perfectly normal it is for children to process grief in ways that, frankly, we as adults never would, including wanting to play or still go to their favorite fast food restaurant. 
They offer practical insights and model conversations that will help all of us feel better prepared for supporting a grieving child. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefhofer. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. As you heard at the top of the show, it's my mission to change the narratives of grief one conversation at a time. Part of that work includes helping grievers start to understand that some of our own suffering comes from the cultural myths and grief beliefs that permeate our culture so deeply, so deeply that they become embedded in our own thoughts and our own self-talk, or in the ways professionals sometimes show up to offer us care. I've intentionally created safe, supportive, and educational services to meet you wherever you're at. That includes individual grief guide sessions, group guided meditations, and more. I promise to show up in my full humanity, and I'd be honored to help guide you to find meaningful and practical ways to incorporate space for your grief so that you can do the important, necessary, beautiful work of living more fully each day. You can learn more about these offerings and about why I do this work by visiting reimagininggrief.com. You know, just I talk all the time, of course, at Reimagining Grief and on the show about the sort of over-pathologizing that we do around anything around conversations around grief and loss, death and dying. But I think the degree to which that we pathologize kids' reactions to hard things is that's part of why I do this work. And I love the, what the two of you do is because I hope that we're helping to break that cycle so those kids don't grow up to be the kind of parents who sort of pull away from those conversations or, you know, make abnormal those kinds of conversations. That reminds me of a family I worked with because I was sitting with a dad and we were talking about telling his younger kids about the child who had died in the hospital. And he said, well, my family's just never talked about grief. This is just, we've never acknowledged this. And my response was like, how beautiful of an opportunity you have to redefine this for your children and how will they grow up learning about how to talk about this and feel comfortable with that. And he had the opportunity to kind of change the narrative on how his kids were going to be left better than he was because they would have these tools in their coping resource to be able to to have these conversations and and know that they're normal and you can express emotions and and talk about death and and grieving and that's okay. Yeah. Oh, that makes that gives me chills, y'all. I think in the same way I am volunteer for with a bereaved parents support group and there's a woman there who as a child had a sibling who died and then as an adult had a child who died and so now kind of looking back at her mother as a bereaved mother in the same way that she is now she talked about how they never really talked about her sibling after they died like in in their family that that just wasn't they never brought it up it was just not part of their family culture. And she talks about now feeling so much sadness for her mom to have never been able to feel comfortable speaking about this beautiful child that she had who had died. Now as a bereaved mother, like kind of feeling that loss for her mom, that that, that her mom didn't have that opportunity. And then deciding to sort of change the way her new nuclear family handles loss. Yeah. That's incredible. Those stories give me so much hope and promise that this sort of larger movement, which you and I talked about a little bit last time, Rachel, about 
sort of moving the conversations forward and what is the next frontier. I do think my last conversation I had with Michael Hebb, who created Death Over Dinner, around sort of normalizing conversations around death and thinking about that. And these stories that you just shared about sort of this intergenerational change that we really have the opportunity to make the more we become comfortable and that there isn't a right way. I might want to come back to that because I, I was really curious when you were talking, Sarah, about the conversation you had with that dad who was sort of looking at you like, hey, man, I've never, like, we've never talked about this. How do we do it? I think often what gets in all of our way, because we live in a very expert culture broadly, you know, we have a double whammy against us. You know, we live in a very expert culture and we live in a culture that doesn't like to talk about anything that's not happy. So put those two things together. It makes for trying for the first time to have a very heavy conversation with your kids really daunting. So can you talk a little bit about are you role playing with families? What are the questions that families ask? And we might get into some sort of different age questions later, but even just more broadly, and maybe we'll start with you, Sarah, and then you, Rachel. But how are you helping break down this assumption people have, I'm guessing, that they have to do it right and that there's a right way to do that? How do you begin those conversations? Absolutely. I think that's the thing I hear time and time again is first off is how. How do we have these conversations? How do we get it right? We've been trying to do everything right. And I, I think that's so much pressure to put on yourself in this situation. Like Rachel said, you've probably never been in nor had to even conceptualize. And now you're thrown into thrown into it and into immense grief at the same time. And I mean, I go through lots of things, but I think the, a really important part of it is it's so much less about the actual words that you say and so much more about you showing up and providing that extra physical touch and just trying to have the conversation and the tone of your voice when you're delivering the words and and sitting there with them and helping them try to understand. I think that is infinitely more important. And so to take that pressure off yourself about that, but but then also to 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 think about, you know, your child is such an individual. And if you have multiple children, they're all such individuals. So what are their previous experiences with death? What are their temperaments? How do have they handled difficult situations in the past to try to understand how they're going to take that information and where is their understanding right now? Because there's there's some families who come in in a trauma or in drowning and the kids were right there and, and saw everything happen or they don't even know that their sibling is at the hospital. I've worked with families in both situations. So Obviously, you could see you'd have to start in a different point for both of those, but but really working from what, what the parents have already disclosed to their children about, you know, you were at the pool and you saw that that he was in the water and he wasn't able to breathe and that really hurt his brain. And then then I can help that family talk more about like what the brain does and how if it doesn't get oxygen, it's going to stop working. And if it can't work then that means the rest of your body can't work and your body will die and start to walk through that process of, of education, um, but really tailored to each, each child. And I think you have to think about, you know, what does my child need to know? What does my child want to know? Part of that individual. And then what is, what are they able to understand based on if they're an infant, a toddler or a teen, that's going to look really different. Right. Developmentally, which we can maybe start to break down later. I really appreciate you sharing that 
earlier this season, Amber Smith, who's local to Texas, you know, was on my show and talked about the work and the support that she actually got, I think, from your hospital, from you all, about how to go back and talk to her two children, one younger, I think, and one older, about the drowning of their other child who they saw sort of that thing happening. And she was so appreciative of the fact that she had the guidance to come back and use certain words. And to be frank, one of the things that she shared with us, shared with our listeners, was the guidance around being really specific. His body died, River died, and to not use the euphemisms like a better place and and other places like that. And so, I don't know, I just get chills every time I think about the gift that families receive when they are able to be in hospital systems like yours, where they have the kind of care and coaching to, again, it's not about getting it right, but I could tell even in the sharing of the story, Amber felt it was one less thing she had to think about or worry about because she felt prepared and supported to go have this unimaginable conversation. I could see that it wasn't about getting it right. It was about that she felt emboldened or sort of empowered and supported. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's so important, especially when you're going to have so many people touching your child at a time of a loss. You have aunts coming in, relatives coming from out of town. You have people watching them when you're making funeral arrangements and greeting all of these guests that you have. And so communicating, you know, finding a point person in your family to to be able to say, hey, this is a language that we're using. We're, even though it feels really hard to say the D words, yeah. <laughs> the death, the dying, that's so much more important for their their kids' understanding or for our kids' understanding. And we're going to normalize that it's okay to cry and that's fine to to feel those emotions. Or or we're going to think about, we're going to have this activity at the, at the funeral. Like that's what I did with a family not too long ago is there were some cousins and siblings and I gave them some memory boxes and lots of paint. And I was like, you can, for young kids, they can talk into the box, all the things they want to say to their sibling or cousin who died. Or if you're older, you could write into these boxes and then you can keep it for yourself or you can bury it with, with him. And the family took and did that at his funeral in their home. And they all used that supplies to be able for all the kids to come and have this grief expression and be involved. And that's so important. Yeah. Mm. Rachel, are you thinking back to any of the kind of experiences you've had with patient families about the sort of struggle families have? Um, maybe not about how to tell siblings about death, but how to talk with siblings or other family members about diagnosis, even, you know, sort of whether it's a trauma coming into the hospital or something like a cancer diagnosis, et cetera. I imagine there's that same, I need to do this right and exactly right. And how are you, how have you walked families through maybe letting them off the hook about right and then helping them understand it's more about how you show up with your whole self for these conversations? Yeah. As here I was talking, I was thinking of a family that I worked with kind of early on whose child had brain cancer and had been through a little bit of treatment and, and knew that he had brain cancer, but the treatment was not going well. And the family was having a lot of feelings and emotions about how to tell him that. And so we did do like a lot of the role plays. These parents were teachers, so they, like me, just really <laughs> wanted to do things properly. And so we sort of got a whole script together for them about how they would talk about it. But the first question in our role play was, do you want to know what's happening with your cancer? And when they asked that to their son, who was seven, I think he said, no, 
And then they panicked. They're like, that was not <laughs> in the script. And they called me and they said, okay, he said, no, no, what do we do? And I said, well, sounds like he let you know that he doesn't need to know any of this information right now. And so every, you know, couple of weeks they would ask him, like, do you want to know what's going on? And he just kept saying no. Um, and his cancer got worse and worse. And ultimately he stopped treatment and, and he died. And up until his death, his parents were checking in about like you may you may be noticing some changes and in, in that it's getting a little bit harder for you to talk and to eat. Do you, do you want to know why that's happening? Nope. And so I think that is you know specifically when talking to patients about chronic illness or 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 even kind of changing status, worsening disease. I think that's always one of our biggest recommendations is to answer the questions that are being asked and ask for permission before you're giving kids information checking in with them about how much they do want to know. I think that's one of the things that really has shifted for me because even though in that in that time and that was very early in my work as a, a palliative care social worker I was like, okay, well, he said no. In my head, I was like, well, that bud, that wasn't the right choice. Like, he shouldn't have. <laughs> like, I'm like yeah. judging the seven-year-old for like not wanting to know that his brain cancer is getting worse. But I was like, ooh, that'd be a lot better if you did, you know? Like, yeah. And I think now we have also had situations where kids don't want to know. And, and I feel so much more comfortable with that. And I think that goes back to that idea of like really just trusting people to know what they need to know. And yeah to not necessarily feel like it would be better for people to have all of the information all the time and to also recognize that that's like a very cultural idea that like that kind of information sharing doesn't necessarily happen in other cultures and it doesn't make it wrong. And I think, you know, when I think about families who our team is maybe meeting in the NICU when their babies are, are first born and we realize that they have some kind of genetic abnormality or, or some kind of health condition that maybe will require lots of technology or, or a long NICU stay and, and families talk about worrying about sharing information with extended family or friends or coworkers. I think one of the things we talk a lot about is boundaries and just how much information does it feel important for those people to know? And also recognizing that some people it may feel important for them to know a lot of information. And some people, it may feel important for them to know very little information and that you are not entitled to tell your coworkers or your boss or your mom all of the medical information about your child. You are certainly not entitled to tell strangers on the street your child's medical diagnosis. If they start asking questions kind of about what's going on, why your child has that thing in their neck or what's this tube for, you know, we talk a lot about what feels right. You know, if you're in an emotional place, if you're in a state where you feel like you want to be a educator for the disability community and talk about what it looks like to use a wheelchair to need oxygen to help breathing, then go for it. And if you're not in that place, that it's also okay to say, that's none of your business. So in a way, you're inviting your parents to ask themselves the same question you invited them to ask that seven-year-old kid, which is like, you get to decide what you want to know. And then more importantly, you get to decide what you want to share. And that that might change on a daily basis. It might change with the audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that made me think of of something else too about even with talking to the kids and feeling that pressure of well, we know what to say and what to do right. I often can 
an, an old mentor told me this long ago, but like compare it to when you're packing your suitcase, right? And like as an adult, when you pack your suitcase, you are putting like all of the things in there that you could possibly need, like probably sweaters in case it's cold. You've got your medications, you've got your umbrella, you know, you've got all the things. For your kid, you're like, here's your backpack. Here's your one outfit, two outfit. <laughs> like, there you go. I've got your sunscreen. I've got your beach towel. I've got your sunglasses, all the things. Like your kid's bag is so much smaller than yours. Mm. And it's the same when you're giving them information too. You have all of this information in your head as an adult that you're not imparting on your kid. You're just giving them these little pieces of it that are the most salient and developmentally appropriate for them. And it made me think of, about that a little bit when you're speaking with like giving the information to others. Especially for family members, right? Like if if your sister or your mom is asking you for all these medical updates on your kid, I think there's this like sense of obligation of like, well, God, and they're, you know, they're my family. Like I have to give them all the, I have to answer their texts every single day, even though I still don't know when she's coming home, even though we still haven't gotten that test back. I have to, and that is, that can be so exhausting for families. And I think for some people, like this is the first time that they've ever really set that kind of boundary with their family member or with a coworker. And so that can feel really scary. But I do, you know, we talk a lot about like what is most helpful to share and what pieces of this experience do you need to share to be able to get the kind of support that you need from these people? What kind of things are you going to keep in your own backpack? You know? Yeah. I, I love that analogy. I know. That's such a good, I'm going to be visualizing that for now. And as a parent, maybe of the child you're carrying around the like hundred pound suitcase that they are going <laughs> to charge you extra for at the airport. <laughs> right. Yes. But that's okay because you're holding that for your kid. And then, and to your point, Rachel, really, thinking about the information that we share. And again, I think we are also in an oversharing information world and we feel a lot of pressures just generally outside of the medical community and illness community to that we owe people information. I think that's such an important reminder to families that they don't and that they really need to think about the sharing of information really in the most, I don't want to say the word selfish because it's not selfish, but in a way that's like, how will sharing this information help make it easier for me and my kid? A protective way. A kind of a protective way and sort of to really think through that. And also the sort of practical advice that you gave, I heard you say earlier, which is find your point person mm -hmm. who can be the sort of keeper and the communicator of information so that you're not answering a million different texts and a million different emails. And yeah, I definitely experienced that in the grief. After my husband passed, I had one friend who was like, I'm organizing the meal train. I'm organizing the like take Lisa out so she's not sad mm -hmm. weekly calendar thing, mm -hmm. you know, that they did. And then I wasn't necessarily having to respond. To, not that I didn't love hearing from people, but I didn't have to sort of give all the gory details over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's nice to do that for your other kids too. I feel like when I see with our chronic families who are always at the hospital or have spent half their life at the hospital, and which means the parents have spent half their life at the hospital too, the other kids at home, a lot of people are like, here's a bunch of Barbie dolls or like a million Lego kits or all these presents. And what families have told me is more helpful is having them come and spend quality time with their kid, like taking them to a movie date, taking them to the park, taking them to go do something and have that one-on-one -on -one special attention as opposed to stuff, copious amounts of stuff, mm -hmm. right? That's like, that's, that's not helping them feel any more connected or any more taken care of. Yeah. 
Well, I can imagine too, though. And I know like my friend, thank goodness, she was an art teacher and she happened to be having the last week of summer camp the week after Eric died. And she let Lily come crash the camp so that I could be like making arrangements and doing things. And shout out to my friend, Julie. You're the best, Julie. You're yes, the best, Julie. Julie. But one of the reasons I think she did it, and the, the reason I bring that up is to the point you made, is I think a lot of people don't offer to take the other siblings out or do things because they're worried that the kid is going to ask them the question that they don't want to get, which is what's wrong with my sibling? What does it mean? Are they going to die, et cetera? So this isn't just about you as the family member getting more comfortable with hard conversations. This is why we're all of three of us really were on this mission to sort of make all of us feel more comfortable with having these conversations because it is the aunt or the neighbor or this friend or the grandma or the grandpa who are also going to have to get comfortable with the uncomfortable and just show up with real heart and empathy for these conversations. And and I think when we when we talk about having conversations, whether it's the parents or family members, I think another important piece of the conversation is how do you get yourself out of it? So if yeah. you get in too deep, if you're if your kid is asking you questions that you don't know yet how you want to answer, like then what do you say? Yeah. And so I think we always encourage families that if they they don't know an answer or if they're not ready to answer it that it's okay to say, gosh, you know what? That's a really good question. And I'm not sure how to answer that yet, but I'm going to write it down and I'm going to find out the answer and I'll get back to you maybe tomorrow. And then you like panic and run to your closet and call Sierra and say, this is the crazy shit my kid is saying. How do I answer this question? Or exactly. or whatever, or Google yeah. it or whatever. Right. But I do think that that's important that, that I think, and I think it goes back to this idea of like, oh, we have to do this right. We have to know all of the answers. We have to. And that we owe everyone an answer. Yeah. And there is one answer. Yeah. And, yeah. and, I, and I think if you're in this situation and 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 your your kid asks a crazy question that you don't know the answer to. I think the right thing to say is that's a good question. I'm not sure the answer to that. I'm gonna need some more time to think about yeah. that. Question. Again, busting down our expert culture, uh-huh. you know, mantra that just is like in our heads all mm-hmm. the time. And how do we do that? And also goes back to the like, why are they asking that question? Don't mm-hmm. you think? Sort mm-hmm. of un- getting yes. to know the underneath. Like, are they asking that question because they're worried about their own mortality? Mm-hmm. Is it about like getting in the way of their play date? Like, what is the mm-hmm. kind of buying yeah. yourself some time to understand that? Totally. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. When we come back, Rachel and Sierra explain how to approach conversations with children about illness and about death. And perhaps more importantly, they give us a gentle and maybe not so gentle reminder that these are not one-time conversations. I think... Just like in regular parenting, not just these like big, huge conversations, at least I feel this like urgency if my kid is asking me something to just answer and like be done with that part of the conversation. (laughs) And so I think like, you know, they're like, can I go outside? I'm like, no. And they're like, why did I say like, do I actually care if she goes outside? No, I don't care if she goes. Okay, but never mind. You can go outside. You know, (laughs) so I I think it's a little bit similar. And like we just have it's just like these automatic responses that feel like everything we're being that's being asked of us deserves this immediate answer. And so I think it's these kind of conversations, it's shifting that in, in, and in that recognizing that this is not a one-time conversation, that this isn't like, okay, I'm going to sit down and tell you that you're 
sister is dying and then we're never going to talk about this again. Like it's like a, the sex conversation, right? right. Like you, you start that conversation by talking about body parts when your kid is two and you right. finish that conversation talking about, I don't know, like divorce and yeah. stuff when your kid is 45. Like yeah, that, like right. that, that conversation is not, that it's not like you have one conversation about sex and relationships and then you're done. It's the same thing. Like you don't just have one of these conversations. So if you say something kind of weird, if you feel like you sort of mess it up, like don't worry because you get to have this conversation for the rest of your life. That sounds really depressing. But I mean, but you in, in, in a way you do. And as your kid, you know, we were talking a little bit about the kind of different developmental stages. As your kid moves through those developmental stages, those conversations are going to be rehad. Like Lily, like if your kid is seven, when when their dad dies, that means something different when they're seven than when they're 17. Exactly. And so those conversations are evolving and ongoing and they, they don't just happen once. And they don't just happen around death. I mean, I'm not, my, my daughter literally did just turn 17 yesterday. And one of the things that I'm recognizing is even our conversations about grief and remembrance and storytelling and all those things look really different now than they did even two years ago. Definitely they did, you know, almost 10 years ago now. So yeah, to sort of give ourselves some space and also back to what you're saying before, to not be surprised that a year later or two years later at some other developmental milestone later, they ask different questions or make new meaning about the loss maybe of their sibling or et cetera. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think to go off of your same sex education metaphor and back to the like answering the question your kid is asking, it's like, you know, the common thing of like, oh, the kid asks, where did I come from? And you're going to like all the details about the birds and the bees and sex. And then they're like, oh, well, Jimmy said he's from New York. So that was confusing. <laughs> you know, like, that's not the same. Uh-huh. I wanted to know if I was from Austin or not. <laughs> right, exactly. But now I learned about a penis. And then it's a little different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a little different. So I think like what you were talking about earlier too, Lisa, of asking like, what is that intention behind the question? Yeah. Are you really worried if, you know, your mom's going to die. Are you asking a question about just general mortality? Or Or some practical question. Right. Like, you know, I've heard kids have asked me after their siblings died, like, well, where are they going to go? And that could really be, they could be wondering a myriad of things. Like, do they mean, are they going to the ground? Are they going to heaven? Are they going on a trip to Florida and then coming back and we'll see them next week? Like, there's so many things in that question. So like, where do you think they're going to go? <laughs> you know, yeah. mm-hmm. ask that or question what are you back. wondering? Or, or yeah, yeah, what yeah. are you wondering about that? Give yourself some space, not just because you're giving yourself space to come up with the quote unquote right answer, but also because you're really like you were coaching that father, trying to under, trying to show up and meet that person where they're at. What is their hope, fear, curiosity, et cetera, and really not bringing our own assumptions to bear about what we know or what we're fearful of or what we're anxious of. And it's hard to do that. It's hard to set yourself down, whether you're a parent or, you know, regardless of the scenario. Yeah. I think that's like fear is the, you hit on the nail on the head of this, like the basis of why people don't have these conversations, right? You can't control how your child is going to react and you have no real idea. I mean, you can have the guidance of experts or people who've been in a situation to kind of give you some suggestions or ideas about how they'll react to the information, but you don't know. And that unknown is scary. Yeah. Um, unknowns are always scary. And also that first reaction isn't necessarily a hallmark of how old would be. I know for many, even like Liz, Lily went and played later that day and other families, you know, have other experiences. And again, what, like we were talking about, we all start to make meaning of these kind of tremendous losses in our life. Milestones are not sort of developmentally. And so even if we 
have a reaction, you know, we feared a reaction and maybe it even turned out to be true that the child reacted in our most fearful way when we had the conversation. That isn't, that isn't the end. That is just a place where that child is in that moment. And then there's information to be gleaned from how did that go? Did I maybe overshare or maybe this was just the way this kid needed to process right now. Yeah. yeah. And I love that you talk about Lily playing because that is so normal. That is such the normal reaction for a seven-year-old and for young kids because we as adults can just talk therapy it out and we want to talk about it all day long and that helps us feel supportive. But kids, they're saying, I need to play. That's the, I need to go and sit and process this information for a little bit. And I'm going to do that by taking a break from talking. Yeah. And that's so normal. And if you don't know to expect that then you're back to pathologizing like right. what like, is wrong with my, my kid? kid is not grasping this they don't understand the severity of it they don't really understand what's happening when that's actually probably far from true they probably do understand what's happening they just need a break I had a mom tell me kind of with a lot of shame that her child's response when they were told that their sibling had died was well can we still go to Chick-fil-a and she was like I like we messed this up like this this is like something terrible has happened because that is not an appropriate response. I was so grateful that she in that feeling of shame was willing to share that with me because then I could I could share exactly that like that no in fact it's a very appropriate response it's very normal for a 5-year-old like that's exactly what we would expect a five-year-old to to be thinking about of like, okay, well, how, what is the impact in my immediate future? And so we got to talk about that. We got to talk about kind of what what we expect to see in the coming weeks and months as as her other child started to process this more. But I do think those kind of things can just be so scary if you're not prepared for them. That's so important. And y'all, it's so hard as parents to not, well, as all of us as humans, to not show up with our own worldview and project that onto people. But I think it's especially hard as parents to to not show up with our own worries or our own understanding and then to do that. You know, Rachel, you brought something up that I, I wanted to explore a little bit. And I don't know, I know you guys see lots of different kinds of cases at the hospital, at the children's hospital, but either from the cases that you've seen, the two of you, or just sort of in the collegial world as, in, as you've done this work, is how much guilt and shame among parents and maybe even siblings is showing up in your conversations, whether it's maybe something in pregnancy and could that have led to this whatever genetic disorder or of course, when we think about suicidality or drowning or something where there's an accident, how are families showing up with guilt versus shame, which we, of course, can quote our fellow social worker, Brene Brown, around that. But how are families showing up with that? And how do you help name that for families and sort of maybe shift the way they see their role in these in their child's illness? Or Yeah, I think there is so much inherent guilt in parenting. That's what you sign up for. <laughs> like just about everything, yeah. right? Um, and that my briefed parent support group will tell you that like guilt is the feeling I hate the most of, of in, in, in doing this work with briefed parents because I think it's really stupid. And I don't think it serves people and I hate it and I don't want anyone to feel guilty ever. Um, I'm to punch that feeling in I the face. I do. It's <laughs> the stupidest of all the feelings. But I think it shows up a lot. Yeah. 
Yeah. I think especially, you know, thinking about the population that I work with who have medically fragile kids and there's a lot of parental decision-making about treatment and interventions. I think, you know, we know that caregiver regret is an indicator of kind of future complicated grief. And so while we do a lot of things while a child is alive to try to help kind of stave off the possibility of caregiver regret, I think it's there a lot. Or that question of, was this the right thing? Did I make the wrong decision that ultimately led us down this path of being in grief? I don't feel like I have any good like tips on how to stop feeling guilt. I hate guilt in families. Are families naming it as guilt along the way? And is there a way to sort of soften that? I think some families are able to recognize that. And some families are just able to say, like, I feel guilty all the time. Like, I I, I feel like this part was my fault and I should have done this or I should have done that. Oh, that should word. You know how I feel about that word. I hate that word more than any other word. It's so terrible. You know, I think we talk a lot about kind of making decisions with the information that we had at the time and, you know, kind of always making decisions and living kind of with the centering being your child and kind of knowing that we want what's best for them. But I think especially for families who choose not to pursue these really invasive life prolonging therapies, and sometimes that involve a lot of technology with the understanding that that means their child's life will be shorter even if they know that they're trading quantity of days for quality days, even if they know prolonging their child's life would also be prolonging their suffering, there's just so much guilt that lives in holding responsibility for decisions that ultimately allow your child to die. And so, yeah, I I think families are often fairly good at naming that. And I think it's just a lot of sitting in in that feeling and, and talking through. Are you also, though, I imagine sort of naming even in those moments, like normalizing this guilt and, and sort of saying things like, there is no one right decision. You're making the best decision that you can in this moment with the information that you have mm-hmm. and to start planting those seeds of. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes in the medical community, the conversations that we're having also are about what it looks like to take back some of that decision making. Um, and I think specifically in the in the role that I'm in, when we're talking to families a lot about their kind of long term goals and hopes for their child. Um, and sometimes really specifically around the end of their child's life, like what do they want that to look like? Well, if a family tells me they want to be at home, they want to be in bed with their child, then I already know they don't want to call 911. They don't want CPR performed. They don't want to come back to the hospital. But there's this sense in the medical community that we still have to ask all of that. That We have to say, okay, but I'm wondering, do you want us to do CPR to try to restart your child's heart? Do you want us to put a tube down to help them breathe with a ventilator? And and to 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 force families into saying over and over, no, don't do this intervention that may temporarily prolong my child's life. No, don't do that intervention either. In a way, you're setting up that guilt again, yes, all over again. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, and and I feel like this is, you know, 
the pendulum of physician-directed care and patient-centered care swings wildly. And and right now, I feel like we're, we're slightly swinging back towards center from this, this very strong place of families make all the decisions. All of these things have to be sort of run by families to where now we can say, gosh, I hear how important it is for you to be in bed with your child in, in a home, in your home or in a home-like setting. So what I'm hearing is that once we move out of the ICU, you don't, you don't want to come back to the ICU and you wouldn't want us doing anything that would separate you from your child at the end of their life. When a family says, yes, that's right. Like, that's, yeah, that's the end of that part. Pick the yeah, as it were right, about, right. Yeah. And so I do think you know there are, there are small changes and there there are small things that we're trying to do that hopefully will have a a, a longer term impact on people's on, on having this like list of decisions that families were responsible for that later they get to feel guilty about. Right. Um. You know that we can we you know we're not living day to day feeling guilty about those kind of decisions and so we talk a lot about as medical professionals, as people who work in the hospital, trying to remove some of that burden from families and hope, and hopefully some of that guilt afterwards. Yeah. Sierra, are you, or you, Rachel, too, but are you seeing guilt or shame show up in siblings? And how are you either guilt that I don't care or that I am mad at my sibling for being sick because they're getting all the attention? Or what are you seeing there and how are you either talking directly to those kids or helping families talk to their kids about the guilt and shame. They... Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I can think about it in like the chronic population and in the traumatic population because from the chronic population, I've worked with siblings, especially those like three, four, five-year-olds who are like, I'm mad because my mom is always up here with my sibling and that doesn't feel supportive. That's not what the four-year-old says, yeah. but you know, I don't get to <laughs> the have essence my of speech. Life. Yeah. Is, is I yeah I don't get to do that, and and mom's not home, and I want her to be with me. And I even had a a kid who the patient was a, a chronic patient who died in the hospital, and the sibling was a little bit older than that. He was six seven, and he told his mom, "So now when we go home, you'll be able to spend more time with me." And that was like, he had already been anticipatorily grieving and had already been grieving having a, a chronically ill sibling. And so her death, it was less of the the sadness of that. I mean, it was there. He loved his sister and that was really sad, but he also was feeling multiple emotions at once that that's, and that's okay. And in the group that when I had done the palliative care um, sibling support group um, for bereaved siblings, that's something we focus a lot on is like feeling all those emotions at once. And that that feels weird and hard. I had another kid who told me when his dad died that this is at another place, but he, he said, I was actually kind of relieved because he was the one who always spanked me. Yeah. Right. Right. Like, when we lose people who we have complicated relationships mm-hmm. with, that's a whole different experience. Yeah. Right. And saying like, yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like you can just hear that and give space for it. I don't think there's necessarily a, a right way to guide them to have just saying like, yeah, sometimes it feels sad and sometimes it doesn't. And you might go through lots of those feelings in cycles over and over again. I mean, part of my work folks who follow me at Reimagining Grief and listen to the show know I'm always trying to help us expand how we think about grief, you know, that it's not just sad, sorrow, you know, regret, that it's a whole spectrum of emotions, which can include relief, which can include joy, which can include lots of things. Also, grief is not just emotions, of course, but 
I really appreciate the way you sort of help are helping to normalize it. But again, it's why we have to normalize this comfort with all emotions in general anyways, and not just be sort of focusing on those hard ones, especially because I would imagine it comes back to the should. So when we think we lose a sibling or lose a parent and the only socially acceptable feeling to feel is sad or sorrow, then when we feel something else, that's where guilt gets to show up and be like, you were waiting for me. Hello. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think for, for parents, for their kids too, of, of talking about death before it's happening to someone who's really critically important to them in their yeah. life. Like, is it looking at the seasons change? Is it looking at the life cycle? Is it looking at animals? And Go get the mustard book. Go get the right, mustard Get the mustard book. with a cat euthanasia. You know, all <laughs> Maybe <those>. not. <laughs> I will in the show notes have a list of their favorite books for you. Say, that there, might not can, be one of them. There's, there's newer ones that are probably a little bit. <laughs> I think that one is, I actually know for a fact that it's out of publication. I'm because literally going to find it. My, I'm going to get it. <laughs> my uncle had to like go through multiple resources and book publishers to be able to buy this for me as a present because it stopped being at libraries because that I was is... so obsessed with this book. So Okay, well, we we will have possibly different books in the show notes from also today's Also probably episodes. mustard. We'll, we'll and we might in. have mustard anyways just because. I will send you the resource. To. Exactly. Exactly. Rachel, I know last time we talked a little bit about this question, but maybe a year later, what are you thinking about is your sort of curiosity or hope for you're going to yeah. see? I think it's similar as last time, but but I think kind of going off of a little bit of what Sierra said, you know, I, I feel really good about the care that we provide, the kind of anticipatory guidance, the after death care and and, and end of life care in the hospital. I, I think we do a really good job at preparing families, but I know that then we send them back into the world and we don't get to take care of them forever. And so part of that feels really hard. You know, I worry about the families that we don't see anymore and I wonder about them. I think, you know, I think about them and how they're doing. And so I think my hope is a lot like last time, you know, that that we just create this culture that we know that death will come in one way or another into all of our lives. Everyone we know will experience loss. At some point, we will have to take care of someone that we love who is grieving. And I just want us all to really know how to do that well and to not run away from them and to know how to sit with someone in grief. You know, I think about some of our families and I worry that maybe there isn't anyone else in their life that they can sit with and say things like, I was a little relieved when my sister died. Maybe there's not and how sad and lonely that must feel. And so I I think that's my hope that through the good work that you're doing and raising this this cultural awareness of of grief. And I want to know that when we're sending these families back out into the world, it's a world who is ready to take care of them. To embrace them. That's beautiful. Sierra and Rachel, thank you so much for joining me again today on Grief as a Sneaky Bitch. Always a pleasure. I can see this being a seasonal conversation. So you might be back again. Thanks so much for joining me today. Of Thanks. course. Thanks for having us. Well, my friends, we've come to close on another authentic, insightful, and meaningful conversation on this show. I am so grateful to Rachel and Sierra for sharing their wisdom with us. I learned so much from them, as I do from all of my guests. 
And I hope you've learned something today, too. I want to thank Guile Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show today. I want to thank the team at StudioPod for producing our episode. As we close the show, I'd love to ask you a quick favor. As I mentioned, it's an honor of my lifetime to create safe spaces for my guests and to share their stories. And based on the number of downloads and notes I receive from listeners around the world, I'm guessing this show is making an impact in some of your lives too. After this, I'm asking you to head to Apple Podcasts, find the show, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, leave a rating and write a review. The world of algorithms counts on that to get this show out to the people who might just need it most. Thank you again for listening to today's episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.